The international response to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine is scaling up with the expected provisions of attackums and F-16s, but remains inadequate to the task of achieving a full victory and often lags dangerously behind requirements, which causes the war to be more protracted, resulting in a greater loss of life on the Ukrainian side. Russia poses a serious threat to the rules-based international order, but is the West's response insufficiently robust in defense of the values that it espouses. A recent Chatham House report rang alarm bells and recommended that Western military support to Kiev should be redoubled before it is too late. Please like and subscribe to see more great speakers and content on the Silicon Curtain channel and also consider becoming a patron to support the work we do or buy me a coffee. My guest today is James Sher. OBE, and has been a senior fellow of the International Centre for Defence and Security in Tallinn since 2019. He is also an associate fellow and former head of the Russia and Eurasia programme at Chatham House. He was a member of the Social Studies Faculty of Oxford University from 1993 to 2012, a fellow of the Conflict Studies Research Centre of the UK Ministry of Defence and Director of Studies of the Royal United Services Institute. He's published extensively on Soviet and Russian military, security and foreign policy, as well as energy security, the Black Sea region and Ukraine's efforts to deal with Russia, the West and its own domestic problems. He was awarded an OBE in the 2020 New Year's Honours List for his services to British overseas interests. Well, James, it is it is both a privilege, but also slightly intimidating to have the opportunity to speak to you today. Um, I'm just intimidated by what you have done and the others you have spoken to. So let's see if that all if intimidation can be neutered out of the discussion. <laughs> I'm sure it will be thrilling and enlightening. Well, let's start with your role in the paper because I've asked a lot of similar questions to a lot of the other Chatham House speakers, but the role you played in dismissing you know, certain fallacies, I think yours is one of the most important ones. And there has been an uptick in these kind of conversations. And that is the pressure to settle because apparently all wars end at the negotiating table. Now, why did you pick this particular topic or why was it thrust upon you? And why is this so important now? Well, it was the topic was thrust upon me because, um, as I think you've discovered in the in the conversations you've been having, uh, these issues are highly interconnected. Um, the negotiation has to be a feasible and practical answer to a concrete problem. And it um, we cannot even um, we can not begin to establish that until we are confident that we understand the adversary we are dealing with, that we understand both protagonists and we understand the nature of the war we are fighting. Now, we quibble about words, but for both sides, there this war has something of an existential character. Uh, you will find very few people inside Ukraine who do not at this point believe that this is a war for the survival of the nation. Um, and I believe it because... Russia's fundamental casus belli is that re Ukraine refuses to um, to develop in cooperation with and in accordance uh, with uh, with Russia and um, its presumed um, past uh, that to a large extent in Russia has been uh, distorted and much of it is mythological. So effectively, uh, Russia has fundamentally, has fundamentally opposed Ukraine's right to be Ukraine. And this is not a new issue. This has been going on um, throughout the entire period that Ukraine has, uh, Ukraine's independence was um, recognized. But it's a, it's a, it's a huge historical problem. When Catherine the Great began her war uh, for what she called then, and the term has been resurrected since, Nova Russia in the 
late 18th century, she described its aim as the elimination of memory. The entire historical experience for Ukrainians has been one where the, the country's history has been written, rewritten, and reconstructed from outside from an imperial center. Um, the West widely assumed that when the Soviet Union collapsed and Ukraine's independence was recognized, that this entire approach would recede into the background, and it didn't. And Putin has very consciously and emphatically resurrected it as a matter of choice. So the whole basis of this war, it's not even about Ukraine's physical survival, although it's threatening much of that, but it's about its national survival. And this is recognized inside Ukraine by everyone. And how do you have a compromise with that? Uh, this is not a war about territory. Uh, we've had territorial compromises. Minsk was the compromise. And people who understood this history, people who understood this antagonism, people who understood the real objectives, uh, knew that this was at most only going to be a breathing space, and the Russians never doubted it because they viewed Minsk as a means of reformatting Ukraine's entire political system. So we're back where we are. Um, the, 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 for Russia, this has become uh, something of an existential conflict as well, because Putin has so much raised the stakes in this conflict. Um, he um, his, and there is a personal element to this. His personal passion and obsession with this issue has created a situation where, by now, Russia has, uh, Putin has sacrificed, and and the whole Russian state has sacrificed every serious priority it had invested in over many many years: special relationship with Germany, energy preeminence in Europe, weakening transatlantic ties, which have instead been strengthened, uh, diminishing NATO, even sound finances at home. All of that is being sacrificed for the sake of this war. So and this soft power as well. I mean, this is a really interesting point that Putin is, uh, you know, in the early stage of the war, Zelensky talked about Russians uh, throwing their troops you know, onto the fire as if you would throw a log onto the fire to increase the heat. But it seems, you know, you've listed all these things uh, which you can kind of measure uh, that they're burning up and destroying for an objective, which at least to us seems fairly pointless. Um they are also burning their soft power. They're burning their cultural identity and perhaps the inheritance of generations uh, in terms of, say, sort of Russian culture and, and soft power around the world. Um, who's no. going to stop it? I mean, this is an unstoppable process, it seems. Uh, not necessarily around the world, because the um, this war is for half the world on the other side of the world. Um, and many people on the other side of the world ask why in view of um, extremely grave problems and threatening problems that we face, should we be interested? And why does the West assume that there is some kind of a priori obligation for us to support the policy of a West that has not been historically attuned to many of our own needs at all. And the Russians have been very good at capitalizing on that. So still, I would say in much of the world, the diplomacy is highly professional, their approach is professional, and soft power in the sense of encouraging uh, others to believe, reinforcing their belief that this is not about the issues we claim. This is about main the maintenance of Western global hegemony, uh, and it is um, a repackaging of Western imperialism um, 
That's not being done perfectly, but it is being done. We shouldn't underestimate it. But I think you know there are other messages also inside the West that have been very that have been very effectively delivered. Just certain constituencies, um, even if there are a few governments that are going to sign up for it. The first is that whatever you think about all of this, as Russia is showing now, we are not going to disappear. We are not going to stop fighting. We are not falling apart. Um, they can recite um, page after page of people at various points who have said that Russia is on the skids. It cannot hold together, all the rest of it. This is manifestly not true. And you in the West have never dealt with the reality of Russia. And the issue is not whether you like us or not. The reality is we are a great power. And without our consent, if you do not consent, to what is reasonable in Ukraine. We have every means of destroying Ukraine, and we will. And forgive me for quoting myself, in 2015, I said when the long war actually began in 2014, and just shortly after that, I said, Putin is determined either to subordinate Ukraine or destroy it. This is now blindingly obvious. Now, how can you call that soft power? It's not attractive, but it does stimulate all these so-called realist circles in the United States and various European countries to, um, uh, to, to compromise, to call for compromise, to um, become more vocally fatalistic. There's no way Ukraine can win this war. And why is it in the interests of NATO or the United States to risk a third world war or in order to do something uh, which is intrinsically impossible anyway? So um, I, I think, uh, you know, there's the Russian, Russia's wider diplomacy and its info war are in themselves formidable opponents. And, you know, one of the, the banes, I think, of, of uh, you know, starting to read a lot of this sort of geopolitical stuff, as I've done really for the first time in the course of the war, is being introduced to the realists. And I won't name them. Uh, everyone knows who we're, we're talking about, really. Um, but it's not just they who who seem to hold this belief that eventually this has to end at a negotiating table. Um, if we can link the concepts of Minsk agreements and the Vilnius summit, are our own leaders perhaps still not understanding the nature of Russia's invasion? And are we still, you know, if you if you hold the view that the Minsk agreement was a valid process designed to not create an economic basket case or a frozen conflict or to be used as a stepping stone for future invasion if you actually think that was a genuine process you may have the illusion now that a negotiation is possible and the battlefield uh, actions are simply a um a form of hard negotiation as a uh, proceeding stage to 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 the diplomatic negotiation now why do you think this is a fallacy and how widespread is it I only wish that a few people who talk um, so fluently about Minsk had bothered to read it. Um, it was a maze of contradictions. First of all, it only was secured at all because of force majeure, because the Russians threw combined armies uh, into what looked like at the time in a regular war that Ukraine was on the on the verge of winning. Uh, and 14 hours of negotiation produced a number of contradictions. But the most unambiguous provisions from day one uh, were not observed by Russia uh, at all. In fact, just after the signature of Minsk II, the Russians completed the encirclement and annihilation of a pocket of Ukrainian forces. People could, you know, one might have drawn conclusions from that. No one did. A year after the Minsk Accords, more Ukrainian servicemen had died in combat than in the year preceding them. People might have drawn conclusions um, from that. Um, OSCE provisions, principles, categorically... Uh, forbid the holding of elections in areas under foreign occupation. 
Um, and even in Minsk, there is some hint of this because the elections are supposed to take place after all these other provisions that Russia never implemented were carried out. People should have read it and drawn conclusions before saying we need more of this. People should have asked themselves when in where in the former Soviet Union has Russia ever honored a ceasefire and agreement that it has concluded? Um, possibly between Armenia and Azerbaijan, because Russia is not, in that sense, directly party to those disputes. But Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine, in every one of these cases, every frozen conflict has been used as a platform to more uh, to undermine uh, the metropolitan country. And this is the whole record. And so if it, despite this record, despite despite the basis of the wall, despite the character of the regime, despite everything the Russians say they are doing and why they are doing it, people say this has to end in negotiation. They are neither watching nor listening. Uh, this is the triumph of hope over experience. And Ukrainians will just conclude, well, they can't be as stupid as that. So they don't care. Once again, we find we are not important enough. There is a, you mentioned Vilnius, so let me come back to this. There are obviously straw men when people talk about this. Uh, no serious person in Ukraine or anywhere else expected that uh, Ukraine would be invited to, um, uh, to join NATO. Uh, even that a uh, you know an immediate timeline would be mentioned, um, but the they expected wording and a tone that was qualitatively different um, from that of Bucharest in two thousand eight, and it wasn't there. Um, they were I th the reaction would have been very different had the Allies stated that they recognize, um, they recognize and, uh, and appreciate that Ukraine's heroic struggle has been, um, is being conducted not only on behalf of itself, but on behalf of Europe and has played a positive role in European security. There's some hint of that part of the document, but that's not there. And secondly, there was no statement that one might have expected that, you, that European security will not be complete until Ukraine is a full part of the Euro-Atlantic system. And making such a statement does not commit the Allies to do anything at all by a certain date. But it's a statement of principle. And so in the absence of all that, just one sentence that Ukraine's future is in NATO, which is as vague as the Bucharest statement, Ukrainians just felt they were hit with a cold towel. Um, and But it points to something deeper. Just, bef just before all of that, I heard what I've been hearing in Ukraine for 30 years from senior people. The West is not ready. The West is not willing to accept us. We are not seen as part of them. We are still seen through the prism of Russia. We are still seen as an instrument in the West's overall policy towards Russia. Uh, cooperative or hostile, whatever it might be, Ukraine is not seen as part of the West or as part of Europe. And if you read the uh, the summit declaration, if you read the summit declaration, you could see how all these predispositions are reinforced. And it's true um, in much of Europe. We have had uh, a paradigm change long overdue in most of Europe, but it's only gone halfway. It's gone halfway in the sense that um, 
uh, far more European countries understand very clearly, Russia is and will, for the foreseeable future, remain an adversary. But the other half is not there. That Ukraine is part of Europe, Ukraine is um, it, it must be part of our security system as well. Uh, Ukraine is uh, part of the West, and not as a charity, as a major contributor with formidable armed forces, uh, extraordinary talent, a degree of resilience and determination that, that ought to be the envy of any, any NATO ally. Um, and that the, the countries, the uh, only countries that perceive this essentially are those that perceived it before. There's some some changes, uh, you know, I would now, one would now add Sweden to that list, I think. Um, the UK has um, always been temperamentally robust on these issues for a curious British set of reasons, and that um, there's a British collective instinct of standing up to the bully and supporting people who do. And um, as uh, our um, EU partners, when we were members of the EU, used to complain, uh, we have this quizzical obsession even now with the Second World War and keep replaying all these films. And so, therefore, when Brits see, Brits see images of uh, Kiev and Odessa, uh, they are reminded of 1940 and all of the rest of it. So the UK is a curious outlier. But we are now stalled with half a, a paradigm change and it's not sufficient. But sorry, Jonathan, do continue. No, that that I think that's absolutely fascinating, and it's a it's a perfect sort of segue into unpacking that a bit more. Because if we look at the sort of realist position, um, and from the stance of believing that a negotiating process is possible, um, you know, if Russia is acting in its rational geopolitical interests, if it's acting to, uh, you know, create spheres of influence, reduce its security risks, blah, blah, blah. We know the kind of propaganda narratives that tap into this. Um, and if Russia is acting in its economic interests, then a negotiation is feasible. If, however, its actions are part of a centuries-long colonial ambition and process, that no longer fits in with that rational argument. So I guess where you fit on that academic spectrum from realist to really trying to look at the local factors depends on whether you believe negotiation is actually possible or even should you engage think, in negotiation with a genocidal, semi-fascistic power. I, I, I have to say I, I've long thought that it um, requires um, a lot of arrogance and hubris for the people who call themselves realists to call themselves realists as if everyone who does not share their basic premises about how the world works are um, uh, are not realistic um, it is perhaps, you know. <laughs> it is not it is simply not realistic it is ahistorical to deny the influence of belief systems in the conduct of states, in the uh, national interests that states adopt. They are not objective things. They are not created by God. They are human constructs that are the result of a, not only certain ge hard geographical realities, which the realists do understand, but um, which are the consequences of a historical and cultural experience. How could you possibly explain um, the wars of the French Revolution uh, without reference to belief systems? Uh, how could you account explain the Second World War without reference to it? Why, um, why did feel people fail to predict its ferocity and magnitude? Why even did Stalin fail to predict? Operation Barbarossa, because he assumed that Hitler underneath it all uh, was simply using ideology for mobilization, and that underneath it all, 
He was a German realist like Bismarck and understood the necessity of a partnership with Russia because those are what German uh, national interests are. Now, we said earlier in this conversation, I mean, I made the point that Putin has demonstrated in this war a willingness to sacrifice every other priority that has been pursued and that one might equate with Russian national interests. Well, in, instead of pretending this is not so, it, 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 it would make more sense to pay attention to that and to realize, uh, draw some conclusions. A very senior European diplomat, I will not mention the name, highly cerebral, very experienced, um, openly said uh, at a conference a few months ago, I assumed, like many, that in the end the Russians would not go to war because if they went to war, it would destroy their business model. And I was right. It has destroyed their business model. But what I didn't appreciate and what most people in Europe didn't appreciate is that they were willing to do that because these issues mattered more to them. So anyone who doesn't understand this, in my view, is not a realist, whatever, however uh, he or she might um, describe themselves. Um, that's, you know, that, so where uh, I think for a number of them, and particularly for Americans, it has to say two things. This war is very far away from the United States. Uh, there are certain elites, there are certain people, people with a certain type of education and heritage that instinctively relate to a lot of these issues, but most of the country doesn't. And uh, it, it, it doesn't take uh, much to understand why. So the war is far away. But secondly, in this ivy tower world of people who think this way, um, Great powers are like planets in the solar system. They have to remain there or everything falls apart. Or we all fall into a black hole. So the whole idea of Russia being defeated is dismissed in both practical, in both practical terms as impossible and in normative terms as profoundly foolhardy. Um, and so Russia is a constituent of the divinely ordained order, as these people see it, as is the United States. And what underpins this also is a belief that if great powers with all their divergences of thinking uh, can balance their interests in their areas of rivalry, the, we will, the world will uh, remain orderly, as it was for uh, most of the 19th century after the Congress of Vienna and the creation of the Concert of Europe, which, by the way, um, envisaged and experienced um, uh, several wars, not uh, least of which uh, the Crimean War, which had colossal impact inside Russia itself. But um, we're not we're, we're not living in in that sort of world. Uh, anymore. Um, to say history doesn't matter, which is effectively what these people have said, not to study history, not to understand how it informs people's thinking. This is just an this is just an a priori ex cathedra position. And it's to ignore some fundamental historical elephants in the room, I would say, yes. the fact that empires do disappear. You know, what seemed inevitable at some point, inevitable internal, um, disappears, you know, the next decade. You've got the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire vanishes. You've got the Ottoman Empire. You've got Germany and uh, Japan renouncing their global imperial ambitions. Things do change. What we have in Russia, perhaps, is a third largest empire in history, a multinational uh, construct that is rather flimsy and what you're suggesting here is that people kind of got their heads around the idea that this might eventually disappear this thing that was inevitable in, in invincible and eternal may cease to exist or transform fundamentally 
it would be um, the, the the Russian Empire has been long lasting and tenacious, and so of course. Uh, Russia, in the sense, is the last European empire. There's something very distinctive, though, about Russian imperialism. And it was distinctive even when um, we had the Hohenzollern Empire and the Habsburg Empire alongside it. The Russians have long defined the um, incorporated other peoples into their own sense of self. And Therefore, inter, um, cognitively speaking, it's very difficult for it's been very difficult for Russians to separate themselves from people they have um, influenced or to see those people through any other lens than a Russian lens and a Russian lens of, of, of common history, which I emphasize again to a large extent has been manufactured in Russia. Um, <coughs> This is one reason why um, the imperial impulse in Russia has such uh, long longevity, but also because unlike other empires, it has never been possible to draw a clear distinction between the Russian state and the Russian empire from the moment um, uh, the Tsar declared uh, independence against the Golden Horde. Um, Russia and Russia expanded. It started expanding into territories occupied by others. Um, so very hard to disentangle all of this. Now, um, some would say, therefore, it is impossible, and these imperial interests retitled have to be regarded as legitimate. The um, I would countered by saying the following. It is not necessary to destroy Russia and its empire. It's not even necessary to change Russian mentality in order to defeat Russia. These are separate things. People funnel them all together. Um, and there's no reason to do so. Um, President Zelensky has outlined very clearly his definition of victory. It's very close to mine. It's very close to many others. I think you would find that accepted in the Baltic states. And what it means at a minimum is the expulsion of Russian armed forces from all of Ukraine's legally recognized territory. And that it includes other things, um, reparations, return of deported people um, and so on but the essence is to defeat them on the field of battle and on the basis of that contain them uh, as we did after the second world war when we uh, when we established NATO and what became the EU and these the, the, these um, enterprises took a great many years. Nobody asked, did Stalin like it or not? Uh, so the Russians don't have to agree. We have to create a we have to create realities that Russia will be obliged to accept, and that, to my mind, is eminently realistic. And it's within our means. So there is no need for the so-called realists to torture us with straw men about uh, converting the Russians into liberal Democrats or dismantling the Russian state. And no reason either for them to invoke all these horrors, which were also invoked when Gorbachev was losing his grip um, in the late 1980s, that if this happens, there will be nuclear chaos, there will be um, a, a thousand internal wars in Russia didn't happen before. Uh, it wasn't an accident that it didn't happen before. These, these nightmarish visions were always nightmarish visions. Things don't work that way. Um, the it will have reper a, a major defeat in Ukraine will have internal repercussions in Russia. There is no doubt. Why should we be afraid of those? I don't understand it. 
that they will suddenly do mad things. They never have. In one sense, Russia has a very rational state tradition. I can't think of a, um, of an, an occasion where Russia has ever gone to war against a power it regarded as stronger than itself. It has exploited weakness. It has responded to bluff. It is a master of uh, dissimulation and intimidation, uh, but it has not gone to war against a stronger power. And Lenin's own formula for dealing with a stronger power was um, that you cannot defeat a stronger power without division. Uh, but that's, it, it, again, look at that history. There's this, the rational elements in this should be very comforting. I mean, what cuts for all of this, though, isn't it, is the impulse to constantly challenge, probe, expand. It's an inherently aggressive uh, mode of existence. And do you think that sort of expansion, the obsession with land, almost the need to just expand like a hot gas into available space, Rather than destroy it, you're saying that actually we can contain it. If you build a container robust enough, you can stop that gas expanding. You can't oh. change it, but you can you know, stop its onward progress. First of all, we have done it. Secondly, you don't have to you don't have to be to do it completely. Um, but you, you have to understand there's a powerful impulse there. I wouldn't. I wouldn't depersonalize it. The so-called reasonable Russians will always say, well, let us have an agreement and they'll start talking again about spheres of influence. The, again, another reason why from a rational calculus, this uh, so-called rational realism is so wrong. Um, it, it, it centers directly on Ukraine. There was no strong constituency in the early to mid-90s in Ukraine for joining NATO. There always was for joining the EU. This was a civilizational issue as far as the Ukrainians were concerned. Uh, Leonid Kuchma firmly believed in a multi-vector policy and the necessity of a special relationship with Russia. This objective was not seen as threatening by the majority of Ukrainians. Um, there was uh, amongst this majority always a strong distrust, but a belief that we needed special relations with Russia. I worked very closely with um, a lot of people in the Ukrainian defense and security sector establishment in the 90s. And their view then was we want to be de facto as integrated with NATO as possible, uh, mainly to help reform our own army and, and, and purge it from its own Soviet legacy. But actually joining NATO, uh, that would be a, a rational suicidal thing to do. That's not what this is about. Those were those sentiments. Now, why did those sentiments change? Not because Western policy changed, but because Russian policy changed, because every reasonable accommodation that Ukrainians uh, made were treated by Russia as the preliminary to a greater accommodation. Yanukovych, who became president in 2010, decided, like a good Washington realist, I am going to meet Russia's legitimate interests. And so he took NATO enlargement, NATO membership off the table, just took it off the table. He said, now, perhaps they will leave us alone as we pursue closer integration with the EU. No, Russian pressure then intensified. Um, there was even a television exchange between him and President Medvedev when Yanukovych said enough. And Medvedev said, uh, it's only the beginning. What we want is full uh, intersectoral integration. And with a smile, I mean, you can consent or not consent, but that's what we have to have. I mean, that, you know, this is part of the experience as well. And it flies in the face from what a reasonable Western uh, person 
even a uh, an unsentimental realist of the old school in uh, Washington would regard as rational state behavior. Only the Russians can change that. Maybe they will. Maybe it could happen sooner than we think. I don't know, but they will have to work this out. It's their problem. We have to create conditions that ensure our security, irrespective of what happens there. And people ought to be comforted by what I'm saying, because there are people in the West who are preaching regime change. I'm not doing that. Uh, we're not doing that. Um, and I, I think in this part of Europe, and in, in, in Poland, the Baltic state, I think in Ukraine itself, people are not doing that. This is another straw man. Uh, what goes on in Russia, what kind of regime Russia has is Russia's business. It's not ours. Let's accept that. But you've identified an interesting negotiating tactic here, and this is almost the sort of, uh, you know, blood in the water, shark kind of response. If they detect weakness of any sort, whether that's military weakness, whether that's weakness amongst allies, um, whether that's sort of weakness on the ground where they can push forward or weakness in negotiating stance, it seems the Russian approach is always to push forward and probe for areas of weakness um, instinctively, whether it's aligned with your rational self-interest or not. It seems the instinct is there to push forward. Does this also undermine the concept of a negotiated settlement? It seems to suggest that a rational negotiated settlement is, is, is neither possible nor actually desirable where you have that sort of, um, you know, um, you don't have a uh, uh, a sort of win-win concept uh, in the Russian mentality. Yeah, to put what uh, your question in another way, um, the that Russian ambitions have no clear and set limit. They depend on the correlation of forces. The point Stalin made himself uh, uh, directly to Churchill and Roosevelt, I think, at Tehran. Um, the but I'll, I'll put another case that Russia has already told us what the limits of its interests are and what it wants. Um, and when we saw their definition of that, everyone said, uh, this is outrageous, we can't possibly accept it. And those interests were spelt out in the two draft treaties presented to um, the United States and NATO in December 2021. And the, of course, comforting uh, um, the positive uh, side of this is that this was dead on arrival in Western capitals. But the negative side of it was that most of these people said, oh, they can't possibly mean that. Oh, I'm sorry, they did. And they do. They didn't expect you to accept it on that day. But the view is after we accomplish our aims in Ukraine, then you'll think about it in different terms. I think, though, you know, they have outlined their objectives now to return NATO to the frontiers of the so-called historical West. And this has been said in very nice terms since the early 1990s. To uh, recognize that our historical zone of interests are vital security interests for Russia, and you must recognize our preeminence um, in that space, and you must recognize Russia's right to a um, to a defense perimeter in which there are no uh, a zone, uh, a gray zone in which there are no opposing forces. Um, and that these points have been made in different ways with different terminology from the mid-1990s. It's not difficult to, documenting it. And um, the Russians have been reasonably, quite rightly frustrated that, that people in the West have not been listening. We've been conducting different types of conversations, so they've made the points more explicitly. And finally, turn them into an ultimatum. 
which is what this, these these draft treaties of December 2021 were. They were an ultimatum. We were told they were an ultimatum. As um, Ryabkov, the deputy foreign minister, said, uh, this is not a menu. This is a package. Uh, and Putin said, if the West doesn't accept it, then we have our casus belly for war. And of course, they expected to take Kiev in however many days. They possibly expected to roll over Moldova. In fact, you know, take any territory potentially that, that uh, didn't come within the uh, security, protective, you know, collective security of NATO. Should we actually draw quite a lot of comfort, one, from the fact that they're not able to execute uh, on those intentions they had through corruption, incompetence, and all the various reasons that have you know discussed with the military experts, but also taking your 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 theory from earlier that they have never attacked a militarily superior uh, power or one where they didn't believe divide and conquer could give them a victory. Poland is now going to be armed to the teeth. You know, flying into to Zhezhia, you see Patriot missile batteries all along the runways of the civilian airports. Yes, it's, very, say that. it's very impressive. You get a, a very tangible sense of this fortress uh, being built out. Russia will be aware of this, and, and should we take some comfort that, that, that uh, they, they may well consider that it's not uh, worth pushing further on, even if they're oh, militarily capable? Uh, uh, no, I'm not going to reach that conclusion. Um, uh, instead, I'm going to agree with uh, with uh, Putin. I, I mean, I uh, not firmly, but um, Putin himself believes something that is inherently plausible, and he's always believed it. This Western unity will not last. Um, um, we are reaching the inflection point already with the next U.S. presidential elections. The United States is the linchpin of what makes the hegemonic system work. You removed that, it all falls apart. There is no collective defense without the United States. We might have, we might well see a return of Donald Trump or someone, sim we might, or, or the emergence of a, someone very similar to Donald Trump after the US elections. Game over, I am afraid. Um, there are other, um, there are divisions in Europe that are very ominous. And so the Russians have reasons to be encouraged. And this is why Putin has a rational basis for saying, I will sacrifice anything in order to achieve this, because after I achieved it, all these other things are going to come back. The special relationship with Germany, energy, the sanctions are going to evolve and collapse. Um, and uh, we will finally have what we have sought for decades, if not longer, of our rightful position in Europe. I'm not dismissing that. This war is not this contest is not over. And if we want it to be concluded on our terms, we have to take it to the end. And I think I am not sure that will is there, despite the constant reiteration of this slogan. We don't hear very much of it now. Support Ukraine for as long as it takes. As long as what takes? What is your definition? A victory. I know what Putin's is. We've discussed it. I know what Zelensky's is. We've referred to it. What is Joe Biden's definition of victory? Have you heard one? I haven't. No, and that that leads on to the last question, and and one that sort of uh, troubles me um, more than any, because now I'm a firm uh, believer that Ukrainian territorial victory is is possible. But does Putin also suspect? that many countries, including ones in Europe, are only too ready to make accommodations with his regime, which may well be incompatible with the other goal of victory, which is returning the kidnapped Ukrainians and getting justice for the large-scale, uh, I label it, genocidal actions. Um, that these accommodations we may seek to make with Russia for economic and security reasons will will betray our own values and in the long term hand a victory to Putin. But experience has shown that 
many are willing to betray what others regard as our own values. And there is a very powerful um, impulse in the West, um, which is part of our own civilization, which is very weak in Russia, and that is hypocrisy. Uh, Russian state culture turns out highly accomplished cynics, but the West turns out hypocrites. Um, the great European capitals, you know, they're wonderful white lie cultures. Um, um, there's again one reason why we don't understand Russia very well, because when we hear a Russian black lie, well, we know that's not true, but we assume it's just a big white lie. And so, well, some of it must be true. No, <laughs> the more false it is, the more confident the Russians are in asserting it. There's this ball behind uh, you speak the language as well behind the word vranyo. I know it's a lie, you do, and I'm going to shout it louder and you're going to be impressed even though you know it's a lie because I'm shouting at you. Uh, the um, We don't have that. So there isn't, there's, a, there's a phobia in Ukraine that the West is in some kind of cynical Machiavellian way going to betray Ukraine. No, that's not going to happen. But what might happen is that in practice, Ukraine is betrayed uh, through a combination of wishful thinking, inadvertence, myth-making of our own um, changing slogans, we've done what we can, etc., etc. Good luck, and surely the Russians have to be sensible. Russia has lost all the rationalizations. We are masters of rationalizations. Um, what we need to have more of in policy and in these discussions is clarity. And it's in short supply. So again, this is all a, um, a drama in progress. And I think it would be very imprudent to predict um, how it is going to end. And I think it would be incautious um, to assume that the um, that um, the Russians have no basis to believe that they will eventually prevail in this. Well, James, that's uh, that's both terrifying, but I think also very important to hear. Um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, there are a million questions I could still fire at you, but I think we've got the essence of the fallacy you tackled in the Chatham House paper. I recommend people download that, read it. There's an extraordinary amount of insight. And of course, on the channel, we have interviews with, I think it's eight out of nine of the authors on that paper. Um, so people can really sort of read it, but they can also hear um the speakers going into a lot more depth uh, about uh, you know wh why they drew those conclusions it's incredible privilege and a pleasure to speak to you James thank you so much thank you Jonathan <laughs>